0: Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. This week, I thought I'd look at what you might call a poem poem. And by that, I mean the kind of poem that people who don't read poetry expect a poem to be. So this particular one has a moonlit beach, the roar of the sea, a troubled soul brooding on the futility of life. And there's a few classical references as well to give it a bit of class. And I think that's what people want from a poem, if they want a poem at all. This one is a very famous piece by Matthew Arnold, the Victorian writer. One of those Victorians who gets called a sage, a big thinker about the world. Big sideburns, that kind of a guy. I think a brilliant poet as well. But Matthew Arnold wrote this poem, Dover Beach, which was published in 1867, probably written, well, everything suggests written in 1851. So I'm going to read you the first bit of Dover Beach and you'll, you'll get the tone. The sea is calm tonight. The tide, I'll tell you what you've got to be really careful of when you read Dover Beach is that you don't do the voice. It's very tempting to do You know that sort of, when people read poetry, that you've got to fight that because oh, it, it can lead you into it, this, this poem. So let me just on Gielgood myself, okay. The sea's calm tonight, the tide is full, the moon lies fair upon the straits. On the French coast the light gleams and is gone. The cliffs of England stand glimmering and vast out in the tranquil bay. Come to the window. Sweet is the night air. So he's clearly addressing a second person in in this first bit. And it starts, I mean, it's it's beautiful, isn't it? The sea is calm. The moon lies fair upon the straits as a tranquil bay. Sweet is the night air. It all sounds... Lovely, But there's just a couple of hints, I think, even at this early stage, that all is not well here. And the person that he speaks to, maybe he is hiding some deeper thoughts. Because that bit on the French coast, the light gleams and he's gone. Now that, surely, right early on in this poem, is an image of loss it's an image of something being tantalisingly out of reach on the french coast the light gleams and is gone something bright and illuminating has, has disappeared and also although i love the phrase the cliffs of england stand glimmering and vast i mean it's rare that we get the chance now to really say something beautiful like that with the word England in it, unless we're talking about a sports event. But I love that. But it does remind us that we are an island and out there is dark, dark sea. This is called Dover Beach, remember. So to me, those are little hints of a bit more darkness than he's maybe sharing with the person he invites to come to the window We then go to the next bit and there's an only. It begins with the word only and I think it's one of the most significant onlys in British poetry. Here, here we go. So he said, come to the window, sweet is the night air. Only, no, straight away you're anxious, aren't you? If your partner says, oh, come to the window, sweet is the night air, only... You think what what's wrong and this is how it goes come to the window sweetest the night air only from the long line of spray where the sea meets the moon blanched land listen now that sentence is essentially only listen so come to the window sweetest the night air only listen just a minute i can imagine a raised hand when he says this just to just to ask her to be quiet but then there's a fabulous poetic clause from the long line of spray where the sea meets the moon blanched land so that is what he wants her to listen to specifically he wants her to tune in to that place and that phenomenon so why He's brought her out there to see the view and then he says only I'm going to do it again only from the long line of spray where the sea meets the moon blanched land. Listen. The moon blanched land. You see even that blanched makes me think of when people blanched with fear when they go white with fear. That's quite an ominous image I think. So I feel this is a bridge. I feel he's tried in the first few lines to put a nice spin on the view from their window, but now he's about to spoil the party. So that listen again, listen. You hear the grating roar of pebbles, which the waves draw back and fling at their return up the high strand. Begin and cease, and then again begin with tremulous cadence slow, and bring the eternal note of sadness in. phew So, he's asked her to listen to this particular sound, and he points out that these pebbles and their movement create a sound of tremulous cadence slow, and bring the eternal note of sadness in so cadence can be a reference to the rhythm of music but also to the rhythm of poetry so there's like a moment here where the poet who speaks is listening also to the poetry of the sea to to its rhythm he is pulling apart that poem as we pull apart this and what's interesting about this is that the speaker and I guess we have to say Matthew Arnold in this instant, he's unfolding his metaphor very gradually. He says to the other, come to the window, sweet is the night air, only from the long line, and that's when he identifies something he wants her to listen to. And then once she's tuned into that sound, he explains it quite technically what the pebbles and what the sea is doing. And then he moves on from that physical description to a metaphorical idea that it sounds like sad music and it brings the eternal note of sadness in. So he sort of converts the physical description into soundtrack music. And now the band, if you like, are playing the eternal note of sadness, which is Matthew Arnold's signature tune. And so he takes his cue and he begins to philosophise. But it's quite carefully done. He tells her exactly what to listen to. He explains what that sound is. And then he starts to give it a more poetic significance. But he's leading us along quite nicely. Often in modern poetry, and it's a thing which I also find exhilarating, the gaps are a lot bigger. We have to do a lot more of the work. We're not gradually led along. Arnold slightly takes us by the hand and says, like, listen to that, and it is this, and it means this, and now I'm going to move on to this. And he's he's gradually working his way through the poem with us at his side where the modern poet often says there it is you find your way so it's two methods both of which can be magnificent of course so this sound this eternal note of sadness causes him to move into a a more philosophical mode he's going to think about higher and bigger things and so of course he turns to the ancient Greek playwright Sophocles. I say, of course, just as a little biographical moment, Matthew Arnold's dad was Dr. Thomas Arnold, who was the headmaster of rugby school and a very famous Victorian educator, very, very pro-classical education and learning about the classics, and as well as sort of low-church English Christianity and he sort of invented what we now think of as the stereotypical public school Dr Thomas Arnold did and Matthew Arnold was not only his son he was also his pupil so he will have had an excellent classical education so he turns to he turned to the greek playwright sophocles Sophocles long ago heard it on the Aegean, it being that sound of the pebbles being ebbed and flowed, if if that is grammatically acceptable. Sophocles long ago heard it on the Aegean and it brought into his mind the turbid ebb and flow of human misery. We find also in the sound a thought hearing it by this distant northern sea. So when Sophocles heard the sound of the pebbles, he thought of the, the, the turbid ebb and flow of human misery, turbid being murky and unclear. There is, incidentally, My reading tells me, rather than my deep, deep knowledge of the plays of Sophocles, there is no passage in Sophocles that refers directly to this. There isn't a bit where a character is on the beach and talking about the sound of the pebbles. But I think Arnold is saying, well, Sophocles must have thought thoughts like this when he heard that sound. And, of course, to be fair, poets can't just hear the sea. They have to put some enormous cosmic spin on it, and that's why we love them. So there is Sophocles, and this sound makes him think of the turbid ebb and flow of human misery. And then Arnold says, we find also in the sound a thought... We now. Is this we, him and his partner? Is it the royal we? Or is it it has a grand formality about it? I'm is he is this the individual who speaks on behalf of a larger group? Is he speaking for northern Europeans? He says we're on this distant northern sea. Is he speaking for nineteenth century intellectuals? I think he's sort of speaking for moderns he's moderns, moderns as as opposed to Sophocles and the wise ancients. But clearly there is some sort of we. I'm thinking also 19th century intellectuals would be a, a, a good, a good guess at what this we is about. Okay, so again, he's taking us along nice and gently. Sophocles had a thought when he heard this sound and we also have a thought and then that's end of stanza so it's a bit of suspense management and we're all thinking okay so what's our thought well the next stanza begins with this first line the sea of faith that's it that's the first line so that's the answer to the question. That's what we think of, the sea of faith. And then you know it's going to be like like an essay. The sea of faith discuss with reference to the grating roar of pebble displacement. And he goes on. The sea of faith was once too at the full. If you remember it in the second line the tide is full. And now he's saying the sea of faith was once too at the full and round earth's shore lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled. But now I only hear its melancholy long withdrawing roar, retreating to the breath of the night wind, down the vast edges drear and naked shingles of the world. Fabulous. So the sea of faith, that's where we're at. And I think you need to see this in the context of the 19th century where religion, don't get me wrong, was still a mighty power. Christianity in England was was still very important, but science had chipped away at its firm base. And I know that Arnold lost his faith in his teens as a result, he always suggests, of his education. I think he became an agnostic, which is a sort of, you know, slight insurance policy, but generally no no belief. And it may be that he's projecting his personal loss of faith onto society, but certainly the church was not as unquestioned as it had previously been in england when it lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled round Earth's shore the girdle it's not what you're thinking it's not those girdles that you see in um, catalogues in the women's underwear section a girdle was a It was worn around the waist. It was a a long piece of fabric, often very beautiful. And it's got a certain association with the classics. I think Odysseus wore a girdle which gave him special powers. And in the Norse legend, Thor, I'm pretty sure, also wore a girdle that gave him magic power. And so... It's quite a good analogy for religion and the sea of faith, because if you can imagine, if it was one of those fabrics with a beautiful sheen, the folds of it would look like waves look at night when the moon is on the sea. You can see that that is not too much of a strain, that those images are similar. So it's got magical and beautiful connotations, but also there is a sense of, containment and and constraint from the girdle worn around the waist and I think Arnold suggesting that religion had a similar constraining restraining effect on society so it's, it's, it's mixed up here how he feels about all this but clearly there is a sense again of loss and when you go back now on the French coast, the light gleams and is gone. A light that gleamed and now is gone in a country where he feels religion is disappearing and certainly for himself, religion has disappeared. A light did gleam and then was gone. As I say, it's not quite so straightforward. Of course, if it was straightforward, it wouldn't be a great poem, but we will, we will unravel it. So... The ebb and flow of the English Channel that he was talking about is now replaced by basically just the ebb of the sea of faith. There's no suggestion of any return this time. He says, now I only hear its melancholy long withdrawing roar, retreating. So it's just ebb for the speaker. And it's not we anymore. Now I only hear. So there is a suggestion that this is a personal response, that he hears the sound and he thinks of the sea of faith retreating as his own faith has retreated. I've got to... Can I just read those last five lines again? I know that the purpose of this podcast in many ways is to analyse and to suggest... Various meanings that are secreted in poems, but sometimes with poetry, reading it out loud, it's just lovely to feel it on your lips. But now I only hear its melancholy long withdrawing roar retreating to the breath of the night wind down the vast edges drear and naked shingles of the world there it goes it's disappearing and that last bit down the vast edges drear and naked shingles of the world so like the sort of gloomy edges i'm imagining cliffs and sharp rocks and the naked shingles of the world that sort of gravel that you get by the sea so Faith is retreating and it's leaving behind it a sort of hostile, sharp, rocky, steep, abandoned coastline. That's what it feels like. I don't know if this is deliberate, but one of the sciences that really undermined religion in the 19th century was geology. Geology made it clear that the time scale in the Bible didn't really work. Genesis was reduced for many from a book explaining how the world began to a lovely story about how creativity could happen in a mythical world. And that's, that's quite a calm down. And as I say, geology was at the forefront. I don't know if that's deliberate, but I do like the idea that the withdrawing sea of faith leaves vast edges, drear and naked shingles of the world, like geology is what we've got left, and we've lost all that glory and magic and beauty and certainty. Now, he's talking, he says that the sea of faith was once to at the full, And we've had all that stuff early on about the pebbles going backwards and forwards. So maybe in all this, he is still betraying a certain hope that his faith might return, that the ebb might flow eventually. But if he is, it's pretty subtle and, and quite hard to find. This is a man looking out to sea hearing those pebbles and thinking, yeah, I used to have certainty and, and now I've just got confusion. So in the final stanza, he turns to his companion. Our oh, love, let us be true to one another. For the world, which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams, so various, so beautiful, so new, hath really neither joy, nor love, nor light, nor certitude, nor peace, nor help for pain. So, our love let us be true to one another. The world seems lovely, like I suggested when I called you to the window earlier, but... Now that I've completely opened my heart, it's pretty clear that it looks great, but it isn't if you think and look closely at it. You know, when I remembered, I hadn't read this poem for years, and when I read it again recently to uh, go through it for this podcast, I'd remembered the couple on the beach, literally on the beach. But of course, he calls her to the window early on. And so they're indoors, sort of safe observers. And I find that interesting. The classical references as well sort of back up a sort of distance. There's a it's less about feeling and more about intellect, or I think that is what he's trying to achieve. He's slightly removing them from the scene. So when he says, Hear that sad sound, you think, Oh, now he's gonna be, he's gonna open his heart. And he says, yes, it reminds me of Sophocles. Oh, okay. But then he starts having said, our love, let us be true to one another. That's a beautiful moment. And but, but, but. He then hits her, first of all, with this lovely triplet of images, which has been undermined by a a big seams just before it. For the world which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams, so various, so beautiful, so new. Oh, great. Young couple beginning out together. You know, when I say that, that's really... I've actually given away that I know a biographical bit about this. I'm going to share it with you, though, because... You know, my view on biography and and poetry is that sometimes it can just reduce poetry to a diary entry. But I can't resist the juiciness of this. That this poem was written, it seems clear, while Matthew Arnold was on honeymoon. So the person he turns to speak to seems to be, if we follow it through, his new wife. And Okay, they're in Dover, it's a lovely view, but imagine the honeymoon scene when he says to her, yeah, the world hath really neither joy, nor love, nor light, nor certitude, nor peace, nor help for pain. That is what they call the end of the honeymoon period, I believe. I hope all that is true. And also, we all know, don't we, in relationships where when the seas calm tonight and the moon lies fair upon the straits and then you eventually hear that terrible grating sound. I'm not saying they're at that stage, but I, I think of it when I um, when I've ever got the, the flash frames of failure in my previous relationships. My current relationship is, of course, perfect. So, yeah, you've got the positive, uh, the positive triple, which is the world which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams, so various, so beautiful, so new. But then, it hath really neither joy nor love nor light. You think, hold oh, it, nor love? You've just called me love. You've suggested our love will dominate. Now you're saying the world has no love. And he doesn't even leave it at that. He has to hit her with another triple threat, nor certitude, nor peace, nor help for pain. All the things, I suppose, which religion supplied. And this is not a man saying, oh, yeah, we've made a mistake here. We, You know, we should be completely unquestioning and fundamentally believing in Christianity. He's not bemoaning the loss so much as the non-replacement of what was lost I would say so then we come to the the end of the poem just these three lines and we are here as on a dark oh god I did the voice I did the voice I'm sorry And we are here as on a darkling plain, swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night. I don't think many of you, if I'd have said what will be the last line of this sad, tragic love poem, would have said where ignorant armies clash by night. When did we go military? How did that happen? Well... It's another classical reference, almost certainly, and it's from the Greek historian Thucydides. Now, bear with me, this is more interesting than you think it's going to be. Thucydides wrote a book you may have heard of called The History of the Peloponnesian War, and in it, he writes about the Athenian army at the Battle of Epipolae. Now, the, the Battle of Epipolae was fought at night, Thucydides makes the point that all battle is confusion, but at night it becomes much, much worse. And he tells us in the book that the Athenians could see figures in the moonlight, but not well enough to distinguish whether they were their own people or the enemy. So they took to just judging by the direction in which they were moving. So they ended up attacking lots of their own Athenians who were in retreat because they were going the wrong way. So then they started calling out watchwords, which is like asking for a password. And that got even more confusing till, according to Thucydides, they not only became panic stricken, but came to blows with one another and were with difficulty separated. So it sounds, doesn't it, just like terrible chaos. And he is suggesting that without the solidity of faith, that is what the world feels like. And apparently at rugby school, where, as I've said, he was a a pupil, that night battle image was in regular usage. So if someone went out on the beer and lost their mates and ended up in a ditch they might say at breakfast the next day, oh, my God, it was a real night battle of an of a evening chaos and misunderstanding and ultimately failure, I suppose. When in that last stanza the speaker says, the world which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams, so various, so beautiful, so new, it sounds, doesn't it, I know there's a big seams in there, but that sounds like this sort of new world where you don't have to look to the church to tell you how to think, where there would be more variety of belief and disbelief. You have been set free. Remember, Arnold was a, an intellectual and you would think he would enjoy this freedom of thought, but there was another poem which I'm going to flick to. Now, if you hear flicking in my Matthew Arnold Selected Poems and Prose, there's a famous Arnold poem called Stanzas from the Grand Chartreuse. The Grand Chartreuse being a famous Carthusian monastery in France, which Arnold visited. And this poem is written at a similar time to Dover Beach. And He talks in that about the loss of religion, and I think it clarifies somewhat what's going on in Dover Beach. So I'm just going to read just a couple of bits. This is when he talks about his education. For rigorous teachers seized my youth and purged its faith and trimmed its fire, showed me the high white star of truth. There bade me gaze and there aspire. So they sort of replaced faith with fact, it seems. And he goes to the monastery and feels tremendously drawn to it. And he's apologetic to these teachers, that he feels he's somehow let them down, that they taught him all this science and reason. And now he's enjoying the company of the Carthusians. And here's what he says. Forgive me, masters of the mind. Just remember, if you're of school age, to refer to your teachers as masters of the mind always from now on. Forgive me, masters of the mind, at whose behest I long ago so much unlearned, so much resigned, that being his faith, presumably. I come not here to be your foe. I seek these anchorites not in Ruth. So I I seek out these monks not in sympathy or to curse and to deny your truth. So I'm not coming here saying I've changed my mind. Not as their friend or child I speak. And now here, this to me sums up what's going on with the Sea of Faith section of Dover Beach. And interestingly, again, he turns... To the ancient Greeks, but in a, in a quite an interesting way is that he brings up the image of a Greek contemporary, his counterpart in Greece, having these thoughts. So, not as their friend or child, I speak. He's speaking you know, of the Carthusians. So, I'm not here to to be on their side. Not as their friend or child, I speak, but as on some far northern strand thinking of his own gods a Greek in pity and mournful awe might stand before some fallen runic stone for both were faiths and both are gone so like a modern Greek looking at a fallen runic stone and even though he doesn't believe in Zeus he feels loss, he feels that something certain and something important and magical and central to his race has gone. And that is what I think Arnold is feeling in in Dover Beach. And in the end, I suppose you do see why he doesn't put the couple on the beach, why he puts them in a room somewhere overlooking the, the scene. I think it's to emphasise a sort of sanctuary in each other, that the personal is all we have left. And when he says our oh, love, he's emphasising that there is love here, but not in the world out there. So let's hold on to this small personal love. The world out there is chaos. Let's be each other's world. And that is quite a big ask, I think. And in fact, an American poet called Anthony Hecht, many, many years later, wrote a parody of Dover Beach. And he gave a voice to the companion who doesn't speak in Dover Beach. And she says, to have been brought all the way down from London and then be addressed As a sort of mournful cosmic last resort is really tough on a girl. And I know that is facetious, but it's not a bad piece of criticism either, I think. Anyway, I love Dover Beach and all the parodies in the world cannot change my mind about that. Thank you for listening. And I hope you'll go away and read more Matthew Arnold. Whoa, it's deep so thank you so much for listening to this episode of my poetry podcast don't forget to press subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode imagine it and if you enjoyed it never ever know please do rate review and subscribe oh and why not buy my new book how to enjoy poetry by frank skinner P.S. There aren't enough P.S.'s in podcasts. If you like this, you can listen to The Frank Skinner Show every Saturday morning at 8am on Absolute Radio. That is also available, of course, as a podcast. It's, it's got less poetry in it than this, but uh, more laughs. See you next week.